The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. We'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we will attempt to look at verses 4 through 8. And as you're turning there, interesting historical picture here. When Charles Spurgeon, the 19th, 20th century, 19th century pastor, English pastor, was 16 years old, he preached his first sermon in, in a village cottage to a handful of poor people, and he chose as his text, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. And in the old King James Version, it says, Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious. Spurgeon said that he didn't think he could have preached on any other Bible passage, but Christ was precious to my soul, and I could not be silent when a precious Jesus was the subject. I pray that our 16-year-olds would think on Christ like that, and that our 60-year-olds would think on Christ like that, and our 36-year-olds would think on Christ like that. He is the precious chosen cornerstone, and we are going to explore that this morning. May God help us to see how precious he is. Well, in verses 4 to 8 of our passage this morning of chapter 2, Peter changes the metaphors. If you've been with us uh, every few months, we'll be, we have been in First Peter as we kind of work our way through Exodus, interspersed with some messages in First Peter, verse by verse. Peter changes the metaphors from verses 1 to 3. And so in, in chapter 2, verses 4 to 8, Christ is not just the milk, as he says in verses 1 to 3, that we crave, But he is the precious and chosen cornerstone that we continually come to and build our lives on individually and as the people of God, the church. Hear this new metaphor as we read these verses, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, or coming to him, as those who have craved and are longing after him, a living stone, Christ is a living stone, rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we'll stop there. Here, Peter has changed the metaphor for these exiled believers. These, what I think, are probably largely Jewish Christians Uh, with Gentile believers kind of mixed in as the recipients. And so these metaphors would be familiar to them as, as Israelite believers, those who are now trusting in the Messiah. Notice what happens when you connect verses 4 and 7. In verse 4, Christ is, look what it says, chosen and precious in the sight of God. And in verse 7, he is precious to us who believe and we receive, look what it says, honor. So he's chosen and precious to God and to those who believe that that is true, there is honor and blessing. And so Peter encourages these believers that they choose and find precious what their father finds precious. And that is a simple statement of Christian living. 
As Christians, we are those who say, God, whatever you say is good and precious and right, I want to think the same. I want to live in obedience. I want to live following and pursuing the things that you say are good and right and precious. And Christ is the best of them all. And so we do. We do find Christ as precious. He says that no longer, not only do we crave after Christ and his word as though infants longing for milk, but then he says, as you continue to come to him, as you come continually to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built upon this stone as a house. And so saving faith is not just agreeing that certain facts are true. Saving faith signifies, as Peter says here, a new nature, new cravings, new appetites, new desires. And the evidence of this new nature is that it not only craves Christ, but it treasures him as precious. So here's the question. How precious is Christ to you? As we just sang, how much is Jesus worth? Where does he come in on your scale of desires? And this is one of the questions before us this morning. Babies don't just crave milk because it's one among many options, but it is the best option. And believers do not continually come to him to be built upon him, to build their lives upon him because he's one of several decent options, but because he is the only option. He is the only one who is living from the dead because of his own power. He is the only one who has been resurrected and ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again. He is precious, but is he precious to you and I? This morning, we need to be reminded by our Lord through Peter that as Christ's followers, we are those who, as our text declares this morning, have found him to be satisfying and will continue as our only lifeline to delight our souls in this precious and choice Savior, as verse 4 says. And as God's people, we are those who have burning hearts together for Christ, who long to know his word and obey his commands, who crave nearness and intimacy with God. Oh, may that be said of us. May we be proud to be his. I pray that you are. But those words, precious, and our hearts burning for him, and that we long to know him, and that we crave after him, and we desire even intimacy with him, I wonder if those words make you squirm a little bit. I wonder if, if you feel like that, that, that language is a little too mushy-gushy for me. But that is exactly how Peter felt about Christ, the risen Lord. That is exactly how these believers were to regard him, and it is exactly how we are to regard him as precious and chosen, the most precious thing to us, more precious than any of our possessions, more precious than our retirement, more precious than our hopes and dreams for our children and their success in this life. He is more precious than anything to us. 
And may it be true of us. And so this morning, Peter gives several invitations, and we'll try to tackle five, five invitations that compel us to be the people that God has called us to be, that he has made us to be as living stones built upon the cornerstone, or to put it another way, here we find invitations that define who we are, depending upon how we respond to the cornerstone. This passage defines who we are as believers. And I say invitations because look at verse 4. It says this, coming to Him. Coming to Him. And we're going to explore what that means here. But he, we are invited by God through the Apostle Peter to come continually to Him for blessing and for Christ Himself. So in chapters chapter 2, 1 to 3, Peter used the picturesque language of a baby longing after milk to depict not merely the activity of religious people, but the joy and the delight of regenerated people in the things of their Savior. Peter's exhortation to them was that they would go on craving, longing, tasting, and experiencing the kindness of their Savior in order for this, in order to help them persevere in the sufferings and the afflictions that were surely to come their way. And brothers and sisters, afflictions and sufferings for Christ's sake are surely coming our way. And some of you experience that. Some of you feel that. In fact, all of us feel that in a sense as we think, I need to share the gospel with this person. I've been praying for 18 months for the courage to open my mouth to share Christ with this family member or this neighbor, and you do it, and they reject you. And it is crushing. And so Peter's exhortations to them are not to give up, but to press on experiencing the kindness of your Savior so that you will persevere in the sufferings and the afflictions of this broken world. Because they have a Savior who has not only saved them, but calls them to come to Him and who Himself is coming back for them. Amen? He is coming back. And we want to be ready. And so Peter gives us invitations to help us in that. Invitation number one, very simple. Look at verse four. Invitation number one is come to the cornerstone. Come to the cornerstone. Here, Peter, through the Spirit, is calling believers to come to Christ. Look at what he says. Coming to him, having longed for him, having tasted and seen that he is good, now continually come to him. Now, now we need to be careful here. Listen, we need to be careful. This is not a reference to conversion. Here, he is describing the lifestyle of every born-again believer. You cannot come to him in this way if you have not tasted and seen that he is good. You will not want to build your life on Jesus as a cornerstone, fitting your life around him if you have not tasted and seen that he is good. But what he's describing here is the lifestyle of every born-again believer. It's not as though we come to Jesus once and then never again. Although some of you have thought of Christ that way. I came to a prayer meeting. I prayed a prayer. I walked out. Someone shared the gospel with me on the street. I prayed a prayer and, and, and then I, I just moved on with my life. 
That is not conversion. That is not salvation. That is not the fruit of a life transformed by the gospel. The fruit of a life transformed by the gospel is one who continually, present tense uh, verb here, continually in an ongoing, perpetual way comes to Christ. The living stone. As though a little stone placing yourself on that cornerstone of life and all salvation and eternity over and over again as though irresistibly drawn to this stone itself. That is our life. And so it isn't just an event, but Peter is describing a present tense ongoing reality that is a trusting and a longing and a craving out of need. What a brick needs is to be built upon a strong cornerstone fitted perfectly together so that it becomes something of value and worth and has meaning and purpose. And so, again, the illustrations fall apart a little bit because once a stone is placed, the stone doesn't really ever move. But what Peter is picturing here is stones kind of who continually come to this cornerstone and are building their lives. And as more stones come and are drawn in by the gospel, their lives are built on this cornerstone and a spiritual house is made. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Just listen to this. I don't often read a lengthy quote, but but tune in here with me and just listen to this. This is a trusting, again, a a longing, a craving out out of need for him, a coming to him. He said this, just what your children began to do from the first moment that you fixed your eyes on them and what they have continued to do ever since. That is just what you are to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. You are to be always coming to Him. Coming to Him for spiritual food. Coming to Him for spiritual garments. Coming to Him for washing, guiding, help, and health. Coming, in fact, for everything. You will be wise if the older you grow, the more you come. And He will be all the better pleased with you. If you find out other wants and make clearer discoveries of your needs, come for more than you used to come for and prove thereby that you better understand and appreciate what manner of love it is that you should be called the sons of God. Peter calls them and us to come to Christ as the perpetual result of the new birth and to indulge ourselves in Christ. Now I realize that might sound strange for some of us. And the reason is not because Christ is not precious, but He is. But because you have indulged yourself in the things of this world, thinking that something else might satisfy you better than coming to Christ. But you are not coming to Him. You are not seeking Him. You are not longing for Him. You are not praying and pleading with the Lord, Lord, fill me up with you. Show me how precious this Christ is. Show me that all of my spiritual needs are met in Him. But this is the result of craving and longing after him as they grow up, as verse 3 says, grow up into their salvation. Peter invites these scattered believers to come like they had never known in their Judaism of the past. 
Peter invites them because they have direct access to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. And so he says, come to him. Keep coming to him. Come to this one who by the Jewish leaders was rejected. He was a rejected stone to them. Come to the cornerstone. Build your life on him. Where you will find purpose and hope and meaning and satisfaction. But what is this cornerstone that, that he speaks of? Look, look, at your, look at the text with me. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight or in the eyes of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. And then look at verse 6. He says, behold, uh, from, from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. A cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Now, you've probably seen a cornerstone before. Raise your hand if you've seen a cornerstone on a building. Yeah, you've, you've probably all seen it. You just might not be thinking about it. Uh, and as a building is, is erected, as it's built up, uh, at the foundation there is a cornerstone. And, and today it's, it's more kind of ceremonial. But that cornerstone is laid and often today, today there might be a kind of a cavity carved in that stone and it becomes something of a, a time capsule of sorts. Maybe some coins are set in there or some, some uh, a newspaper or the names of the people who constructed this building to commemorate the completion of a significant project. In fact, on July 3rd, 2004, it was said by the governor of New York at the time that a 20-ton slab of granite inscribed to honor the, quote, enduring free, spirit of freedom was laid Sunday at the World Trade Center, back in 2004, the World Trade Center site as the cornerstone of the skyscraper that will replace the destroyed towers. He stated, in less than three years, we have more than just plans on paper. We place here today the cornerstone the foundation of a new tower. And you can walk by and you can see that 20-ton slab of granite and you know that that building is complete and it is secure and it has been fashioned properly for its purpose. In modern days, a cornerstone commemorates the laying of a foundation of a building, but in ancient times, the cornerstone was a stone placed in just the right way in just the right place so as to give the building strength and stability. Because having a strong building is serious. We've all seen the horrific pictures and videos of of underdeveloped nations where an earthquake rocks those communities and these little flimsy buildings come crushing down and lives are Horribly lost because those buildings were not built on solid foundation. They were not fit properly together and it is devastating. Now when we come to the scriptures, the emphasis was on the building being complete and finished. The cornerstone was the fact that without this stone, a building was incomplete, even dangerous because it would be unstable. And so it is for everyone who seeks to build their lives on anything other than the rock-solid stone of Christ. 
Their life is unstable. It is unsteady. And it will ultimately, we'll see in this text, be crushed by this living stone in judgment because of their rejection of this precious cornerstone. Now in our text, look down at Verse 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a, chosen, a precious cornerstone that is precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Previously, The stone that is being spoken of here in this text had been evaluated by one group, that is, the leaders of Israel. And they rejected him. They rejected the Messiah. He could have been life and everything to him to them, but they rejected him. And the and the second building campaign, they 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 evaluated this stone and they said, No, we will we will not bow to this one. We reject this stone in our pride, and in our arrogance. We will not bow to this one who has all of the marks of the Son of God, all of the the signs of deity, all of the signs of the Messiah who came to deliver his people from their iniquities. And they rejected him in their pride and in their arrogance. But mark it, just as they were it was predicted they would do all according to the foreknowledge of God, he could have been life and everything to them, but they rejected him. In the, but the second building campaign is one of life and refuge and protection, and the builder is God. Look at what he says in verse 4 again. Rejected by a man, but in the sight of God, he is chosen and he is precious. And by God's grace, we see him as God sees him. Whoever believes, verse 6 says, in him will not be put to shame. Those leaders of Israel were put to shame as they looked on the crucified Christ. And there he was, bleeding and dying for their sins, for all who would believe, and yet they rejected him. Now, Peter's reference to Isaiah 28, verse 16, and in verse 6. In that passage, we read that the leaders, in fact, it says in Isaiah 28, verse 16, it says they were scoffers who rule. This was the leaders of Israel. They were scoffers who ruled in Jerusalem. They were trusting, if you read Isaiah, and in chapter 8, they they were trusting in other gods to save them because the Assyrian forces were pressing in to destroy them. And so these, these rulers, these Israelite rulers, what did they do? They, they sought security in false gods. They sought security and safety and refuge, not in the cornerstone, not in the one who could provide and deliver them, but in a false foundation, in false gods. But Yahweh declares that it was futile. And in fact, verse 15, if you were to turn there, says, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have made a, 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 a pact. We have made falsehood our refuge. 
Therefore says Yahweh God, behold, I am laying as a foundation stone in Zion, a stone. Zion is Jerusalem, a stone, a tested stone. And he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Psalm 118 verse 22 uh, cites this. He is the stone which the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone. And so God places forth in the rejection of the Jewish leaders for false gods. He places forth, he puts forth his, his cornerstone. In 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5, we see that this stone was a person. And in this text, we see that this person is the cornerstone. And Jesus in the Gospels understood himself to be this cornerstone. But look at what it says. He was the stone in verse 7 that the builders rejected and he has become the cornerstone. In verse 8, look at the text, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A rock of offense, stone of stumbling, but also the stone of blessing. For all who have trusted and believed and placed your reliance on this stone. He is a strong refuge as opposed to the false refuge of impotent false gods and, and false treasures and pleasures. So the first invitation is that we come to this cornerstone. Coming to the cornerstone is what you do when you long for the source of the word in verses 1 to 3. And therefore go to his word and the, the way a baby longs for milk. And as you long for it, coming to it and feeding on Christ because that is what you find him. You find him to be precious. He is chosen. He is choice. And he is everything that we need. We like silly sheep who go astray. He is the shepherd to us who leads us to green pastures. He is precious because we are weary pilgrims who is a refuge to us as we wander through this land. He is precious to us like because we are slaves by nature. He is precious because he has paid the ransom price to free us from our slavery to sin. He is precious like a plank of wood in the river is to a drowning man in a river. How precious to him is that plank, that log that comes by and is a rescue to the man. Think of the cross of Christ on which he puts poor, trembling sinners and he secures their safety and their refuge. Christ is precious to us because he supplies all of our wants and needs. He is the secure foundation for our salvation and our lives. Second invitation is this. Not only are we to come to him, but we are to build on the cornerstone as living stones. We build on the cornerstone as living stones. Look at verse 5a. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Spiritual house. We are to build on the cornerstone as living stones. So the result of coming to him is that we are shaped and fashioned and built upon him. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen a, a mason, a skilled mason build a wall with brick and mortar? It is fascinating. 
It is, it is mesmerizing to watch the bricks fit together perfectly as they scrape the mud and they place the brick and they, and they build a wall with skill. They shape and fashion this wall, these stones together. They build it up so that what was once just bricks and concrete is now a wall that is sturdy and strong. Excuse me, Christ is the everlasting, ever-living stone, the foundation and the cornerstone upon which other stones would be fitted and built up. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. God has raised up this rejected stone. He was rejected. This is part of the plan of salvation is that God would receive glory in sending his son to a people who would reject him all according to the foreknowledge of God so that he would be magnified as the great savior and redeemer not only of Jewish believers who would one day trust in him who will one day trust in him by the way but also of Gentiles who would look on him and say look at this one who loved his people so deeply and so well that he would die for their iniquities. God raised up this rejected stone, Yahweh himself in the Old Testament, and we see that it is Christ, the Messiah. They reject and crucify him, but God the Father has chosen the stone and he is precious in his eyes. He comes to deliver his people spiritually, is rejected and killed is, a resurrect, is resurrected as king and makes him, God makes him the everlasting, ever living stone, the foundation and cornerstone upon which other stones would be fitted and built up as they come to him in salvation and then coming to him for their sanctification and joy. Listen to Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And are of God's household. You and me, brothers and sisters, you and me, we are part of God's family, his household, bricks who are being built upon Christ, who day by day are coming to him saying, Lord, build me up in you, satisfy me in you. Would you cause me to be more and more like your son so that I would be a pleasing aroma to you? Listen to Hebrews 3 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we, believers, look, we, you and I, We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Are you a part of God's house? Are you building your life on the cornerstone? Or are you building your life on something else? We'll sing, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Are you sinking in the sinking sand of earthly pursuits and rejecting Christ the Messiah? Maybe subtly. Maybe you say, yeah, yeah, I like like this Christianity thing. I like coming to church. But Jesus as master and Lord over everything, he who commands my pocketbook and my time and my resources and my future, That's not the Christ for me. You need to be built up on the cornerstone. This is what it means to be a part of the church. 
The illustration is of a spiritual house or I think a temple made not up of physical brick and mortar but of regenerated living sons and daughters of God, little living stones. This is the church. Our lives are are woven together in Christ and with the life of Christ as the center. Each of us just where we should be. That's our desire. Lord, Lord, I want to be just where I ought to be built on you and growing up on you, connected to other living stones for life and sanctification and growth and godliness. And so we corporately, we build our lives on Christ. We believe and obey and we look to him for all things. That is what it means to build our lives on him, the cornerstone. That's the second invitation. And the third is this. We offer spiritual sacrifices as holy priests. Offer spiritual sacrifices as holy priests. Look at the second part of 5, verse 5. He says, to be a holy priesthood. We are building, we are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, what's the point of that? What, is, what does he mean that we are, we are living stones who, and, and a holy priesthood? to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, he uses language, uh, Jewish language, language that described Israelites, and we'll see that more later uh, in a future message on verses 9 to 12. Peter employs language that was descriptive of, of Israel to describe now Gentiles grafted in to say that you too are like priests. The, the priesthood is on pause, and now all believers... Jew or Gentile, trusting in the Messiah, are like believer priests who offer sacrifices to God. Now, it's a new metaphor. One of the unique facets of God's work in this time is that the priesthood has been put on hold and that Christ has made the final sacrifice as the Lamb and He Himself is the high priest serving His people. But we become New New Testament believer priests And what are the privileges of New Testament believer priests? Think of an Old Testament priest. There's many things that that they did that were unique and and often very actually terrifying because they would go before the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle and in the temple. But what what are some of the similarities? Well, New Testament believer priests, we ourselves, like Old Testament priests, are set apart for service. Look at what he says in in verse 5 to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The priests of the old covenant were to offer sacrifices. They were to serve God's people. They were prepared for service. And so are we, like in Ephesians chapter 4, equipped through the ministry of the word to offer service to God and to his people and to the world. Priests of the Old Covenant and of Mosaic Covenant and today, New Testament priests, believer priests are called to obedience. New Testament priests honor the word of God. Like verse 2 says, we long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. We seek to do all that it says and follow its commands. New Testament priests have the joy of walking with God. Can you believe it? We get to walk with God we get to influence and impact sinners alike. Priests were to have a spiritual influence for godliness in the life of Israel. And so do we. Galatians 6.1 says that if, that if any of you is caught in any transgression, you who are what? Spiritual. 
should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Spirit of the believer, uh, the, the activity of the believer priests. We're messengers and we are heralds of God to declare the word of God to the world and to one another. First Peter 2.9, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. But here's the main thing, believers. Here's the main thing. The main privilege of a priest. However, the main privilege is this. Access to God. We're not merely the passive building, as it's been said, where God dwells. We are also the active participants in worship. We are active participants in worship. Not only what we do, although specifically what we do when we gather, but in everything in life. We are active participants as believer priests. We stand before God in the presence of God because of Christ by His Spirit at all times. Our lives are laid bare before Him, and we are accountable to Him, to live for Him. And what a privilege it is. And not just participants, but a special kind of participant, brothers and sisters. We are priests, all of you. All of you are a part of the priesthood of all believers. What a great and glorious teaching that it is. And and we offer spiritual sacrifices as we Come to him. Look at what he says. Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this is maybe the main exhortation of this text. And I just got to warn you, we are not going to get through two of these invitations. But they are weighty and they are glorious and I'm eager to get to them. But he says this, spiritual sacrifices mean God honoring. What what are these spiritual sacrifices? God honoring works done because of Christ under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Word of God. But what are these spiritual sacrifices? What does it mean, brothers and sisters, that you and I as believers, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God? Do you think of yourself in that way, that my life is full of spiritual sacrifices to God? Well, what are these things? What are these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? Well, we could say, first, we offer worship to God through our bodies. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We offer to him our bodies as living sacrifices. And all of that by the mercies of God. He says, if you have received mercy from God, then your whole life... Everything that you possess, everything that you are by the grace of God is a sacrifice to him, is an offering, is a blessing to him for his glory. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or you hammer nails or drive a car for a living or make a meal for your family or design websites or build buildings or craft things out of metal or you raise a family or you knit a scarf, or you shoot a basketball, whatever it is you do to the glory of God with your body. Is that your desire? Then if it is, that is your spiritual service of worship. What else? 
Hebrews 13, 15 says, we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And so spiritual sacrifices are the praises and the thanks of God's people alone in our own lives, but also in corporate worship. It might include speaking, like what I'm doing right now. Is, is my preaching being done in a spiritual manner? Is our piano playing and our singing and our serving children and our sacrifices and other ministry, are they done in a spiritual manner as an offering consciously to God that we might be pleasing to Him? Do we do it out of thanks or do we serve begrudgingly? Some of you keep your lives on the periphery of involvement in the household of God and you do not give him the thanks and the praise that he deserves from your gifts that he's gifted you with. So what are you doing? How is your life being offered as a sacrifice to God, not only to God for worship, but as a living stone, building your life around the lives of other living stones to see them built up in maturity and godliness and purity? Also doing good and love and sharing your resources. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Are you stingy? Are you stingy? Do you hold so tightly to the things that you have that when you see a poor beggar on the side of the street that you think, No, I'll never give it. Or when you hear about a need in the body, you say, hmm, do they really need help? Are you so stingy that you are unwilling to give back to God what is his willingly and freely and joyfully? Or do you desire to do good in love, sharing your resources for the glory of God? This is what it means to offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's why we give. It's why we support missionaries. It's why we exist as a church is to give back to God all that is his for his glory. And then finally, what are these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God? Well, we could say bringing people to Christ offering our, our efforts to minister the gospel to the lost in our lives that they might know Christ. And sacrificing your desires for the good of others, giving up even your own comfort for them. But also, maybe most significantly, and what we will do tonight, what I want to exhort you to do tonight, is that we pray on behalf of other believers. We pray that is maybe the most profound and the most basic ministry of all believer priests is that we have access to the throne of grace and we can go in prayer in a second for the needs of others. Some of you need to start praying for this church. Some of you do not pray regularly for the people in this church. And so you need to pick up a directory so you can see their faces and hear their names. But you need to be praying for the people of this church that they, like living stones, would be built up on Christ as precious and that he would be precious to them. Let me close with this. Next time we'll look at verses 6 and 7 in more depth and then verses 7 and 8. But let me just say this as, as just a note in verse 7 and 8. Those who reject Christ those who do not see him as precious and choice like God. Listen to this. Jesus is divisive in a sense. Every person 
will run into Christ the stone. God has laid him in the pathway of the universe and every human being will run into this stone either to be saved or to stumble. There is no third option. Either you have seen and believed on Christ as a chosen and precious stone or he has been to you a stone of stumbling. He is a rock of offense. And look at what verse 8 says, some of the most chilling words in all of Scripture. And I just want to encourage you to ask God this week, Lord, would you help me to believe what these verses, these words say? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That is a shocking verse. But what that verse declares is the sovereignty of God at a basic level, level over all things, over those who are elect, those who will be saved, and those who will be judged and condemned in their sin for all of eternity, who in their rebellion reject the chosen stone. And what I want to say to you is this. Are you rejoicing in Christ, the living stone, who can be and will be to you a foundation and a sure hope for the future, for your eternal life? Or are you stumbling over Christ who says, I am king and I will be nothing else to you. But if, if I will be king to you, you will be satisfied. You will be given hope and a future, eternal life, forgiveness and all of that. And if you reject that, if you say no, if you say no, I am the captain of my own ship. I hold my own destiny in my own hands. Then you will be unavoidably, don't miss this, crushed by this stone. You will stumble. And this means death, spiritually and physically separated from God for all of eternity. Here we see that God is sovereign over all things, including those who reject Christ. And Peter declares that those who reject him will suffer God's ultimate rejection because rather than savoring Christ, they stumble and they find him offensive. And they reject, they reject him. And those that, that Peter says that whom God passes by manifest the evil of their hearts in their rejection of Christ. And even that, listen to this, orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God. God knows all things. He has a plan in all things. And so the question for you is, will you come? Will you bow your knee to King Jesus? Will you bow at the cornerstone and get, live your life, build your life upon him as the one and only sure foundation for your soul for now and in eternity? Will you escape the judgment of God? Those who reject him will not. Those who reject Christ as the only cornerstone of their salvation will be crushed by this stone. And so if we're going to be a spiritual temple for God's presence, if we're going to be a holy priesthood, if we're going, as one author says, to, be, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, then we must day by day, hour by hour, come to Christ tasting of his kindness, feeding on his word, his promises, his, his commands, his teachings, and even this warning. Beware the cornerstone. You will stumble into him. Every human will run into this stone one day or another. 
And if you have not bowed your knee to King Jesus, do that today. Turn to Christ, repent from your sin and trust in him. And believers, if you are resting in Christ, keep coming to him in your fears, in your doubts, in your worries, in your battle for resting in Christ, in your guilt over your sin for the future as you look to the world and you think this place is falling apart around me. Remember that your life is built on the cornerstone and even if someone should take your life for the sake of Christ, which they may do one day, Your life is secure because you have built it on Christ the cornerstone. Amen? Keep coming to him. We're going to sing the solid rock together now. And may God grant us to walk and to build our lives on him. To cause us to see ourselves as holy priests through Christ who our entire life is meant as a sacrifice to him. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you now and we ask that you would do what only you can do. Lord, there are two responses, only two, to Christ the cornerstone. Either we submit to him and find him precious and a savior to delight in, or he is a stumbling stone, a rock of offense that will eventually crush those who reject him. And so, Lord, for any whose sins have not been forgiven or who are sitting here thinking that that they are offended by what I have said or by what your word has said, and they will not follow Jesus. Lord, would you cause, would you crush their unbelief even now by your mercy that they would believe, that they would obey, and that they would find Christ precious. And Lord, for those who are saying they trust in Christ, but their lives look like something totally different, would you just use your word, oh God, by your spirit to convict them, to help them to see that today is a day to turn and repent and to walk in joyful obedience with Christ the cornerstone. We pray these things in his name. Amen.